you would uh, turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3, we're going to, because we're going over 30 verses again this morning, so uh, again another lengthy passage, uh, we're going to go ahead and read it as we go through the, uh, through the message, uh, rather than read it all at first and uh, have to remember what was it that we read, so we'll, we'll handle that as we go through. Um, therefore, let me just ask you to take a moment and join with me and, and let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are faithful. And it is a tremendous hope that we have that you do not change. We can rely upon you. We can trust you. Father, would you be faithful in the midst of this service as we look to your word? Would you guide us? Would you open up our, our minds to understand the truth of your scripture? Would you work within our wills that we might believe the truth of your scripture? Would you transform our lives? We pray for Sunday school, especially for our children, Lord, who are gathering in just a few minutes and um, we would pray that you would uh, bless the Sunday school time. We pray for the teachers that they will not be so focused on the lesson they've prepared that they miss the hearts that are before them. We pray that your spirit, O oh God, would open up the hearts of our children, that they would trust in you, even at these early ages. And for those who already know you, O oh God, please build them up in the most holy faith. And for us, help us, O oh God, to know how we might remain in the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I want to start out by having us think about truth. And it won't necessarily be a, a philosophical um, or epistemological discussion, a uh, little, little more practical. Um, I, I read a story of a, a pastor who would have a new members class. And in the uh, new members class, the first thing he would do is he'd have everybody get together and they, he would have a, a little jar filled with beans. Um, and he would ask them the question, how many beans are in the jar? And all of them would guess and write down their answers. I mean, this, this just resonates with us, right? This, is, this has got our uh, church picnic written all over it. So we, we would be the best at this. And, and so he would get them to write down the numbers, and then everybody would tell what their number was, and he'd say, okay, so which one's closest? He'd tell them how many beans were in there, and it was just this, this great thing. And then he would ask them, what's your favorite song? And people would begin to give the, the answers to, to the favorite songs that they've got. I've got some suggestions that we might see. Uh, Sultans of Swing by Dire Straits. I only bring that up because a friend of mine posted on Facebook this last week that that was his all-time favorite song. He loved it and uh, just would always listen to it over and over again. And, and some of us are going, hey, yeah, I can groove to that. That's all right. That's all right. Another one, Savior by Skillet. This was uh, Patrick's, the first one that came to his mind. And then, of course, you know, we've got the, the next, Amazing Grace by John Newton, right? We've got to go with that. If I Stand by Rich Mullins, this is the one that I'm, I'm kind of throwing in there. And then after this last song we just heard, Creed, Faithful Love, that we just sang, that's got to be some of our favorites, right? So we can come up with whatever our favorite song would be. And you could, you could add them, you know, we've got maybe 30 people in here. We could probably come up with 50 or 60, right, of our favorite songs. And, uh, and then he would ask them, okay, so which of these two exercises is, oh, no, no, then he'd ask on the favorite songs, which one's right, right? 
We did that with the beans. Which number is closest to, to the correct one? Which is closest to the correct in the, in the songs? And of course, the answer is if I stand, Rich Mullins, right? They'd say, no, there's, there's no answer to that. It's just kind of our, our own choice. He said, okay, so let me ask you, when it comes to choosing what you're going to believe, is it more like the favorite songs or the beans? And he says, what's fascinating is young or old, it makes no difference. The class consistently says it's more like choosing songs. Isn't that fascinating? That we begin to have this idea that religious faith is just kind of a preference thing. There's no real answer. There's no real truth. And that's how powerful the the postmodern thought has come into our lives, that it begins to affect us in that way. There's an assault on truth that's all around us. Here we get a little philosophical in that um, we we talk about uh, the laws of logic and uh, Aristotle wrote out uh, three primary laws of logic, and, and one of them is the law of contradiction, and that means a thing cannot be A and non-A at the same time in the same way. Okay, An orange cannot be an apple. It's either an orange or it's an apple. It's one or the other. You can't have them. And so truth, truth does not contradict itself, and so that, that law of contradiction. But we live in an age in which we're, we're dealing with with contradictory truth claims all around us, right? The contradictory truth claims about morality. What is moral? What is not moral? The contradictory truth claims even about, you know, when does life begin? And we begin to argue about that, and the the sanctity of human life becomes an, an issue in which we have contradictory truth claims. They cannot both be true. We have contradictory truth claims when it comes to politics, right? Both sides will tell you the other side is absolutely lying to you, Correct? It makes no difference which side you're on. The message is identical. You just change the first word, right? In, in whatever the other side is. And, and we've got these contradictory truth claims. But what is truth? We have contradictory truth claims about what the Bible teaches. We have, we have uh, assertions being made about what the Bible says that are so completely wrong. I remember a, a friend of mine a number of years ago posted on, on Facebook and he said, well, the Bible never claims to be the word of God. And I thought that's astounding because 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says all Scripture is God-breathed. And that's the whole idea of it being the Word of God. How can you say that? He says, well, I'm not going to argue the Bible with you. It's like, okay, well, I understand. I get that. And, and, but, but, but to begin to recognize how can we make that claim when the Bible makes another claim? But we have that all around us, don't we? These contradictory truth claims are all around us. And what do we do? It was a, a, a recent article that I read that I found uh, fascinating because it pointed out we used to battle for truth and now we have a real difficulty in that truth is viewed as irrelevant. doesn't matter. Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were invited to ignore truth and worship a golden image. We're all familiar with the, the fiery furnace and the golden image in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And we're going we're gonna to begin to look at that. They were faced with this choice. What will you do? Will you ignore what the Bible has told us, which is to worship only God, and bow down to this golden image? And it appears that there were others from Judah who chose to do precisely that. 
And I could see, you can, you can hear the argument, can't you? Okay, so the, the king says, if you don't bow down to this uh, golden image of me, um, we're going to tear you limb from limb, we're gonna, or throw you in a fiery furnace is what we're going to do. Tearing limb from limb is later on. But uh, he says, that's what we're going to do, is throw you into a fiery furnace if you don't do this. Can't you hear the friends just saying, oh, come on, guys, it's not a big deal, right? Why are, why, are, why are you getting all bent about this? I mean, we know it's not a real thing. It's just a statue. It's no big deal. And, 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 and worship is something that happens in your heart. It doesn't really matter if you bow down to it. So don't, 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 don't make it such a big deal. They might even say to them, you know what? Just, just go ahead and, and bow down, but don't mean it. You know, you don't have to be sincere. And we know that that's really what matters is what you're, what you're sincere about. And so, so just, just, just don't be sincere about that. Then the super sophisticated these would be the cool guys, would say, look, look, it means a lot to the king, doesn't it? I mean, clearly, this, this is important to him, right? And, and we want to win him over to our faith, and so we don't want to be condemning him. We want to we wanna reach out to him, and so if we just bow down, we'll be able to say to him, you know, we understand and, and we love you enough that we're not going to make this a big deal, king. Can't you hear those? And they're faced with this invitation to ignore truth, but they remained in the truth, didn't they? I think if we look a little bit closer at this passage, we're going to be able to see a couple principles that will help guide us to be able to remain in the truth as we face the challenges. Sorry, Ali, I'll just move this over here for you. Oh, oh, you're fine. <laughs> um, as, as, as we face the pressures in our life, the crowd is going to push us, and, and let's, let's be honest, peer pressure and following the crowd is not just something you have to worry about when you're young, right? All of us have to deal with this, all, all the entirety of our life. And the pressure for us to leave the truth is great. How do we remain in the truth? I think the first principle this gives us is that we need to, to resist the world's enticements. Let's read the first seven verses. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, Lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you were to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. What does Nebuchadnezzar offer 
to entice all of the people, and in particular the Hebrews who worship Jehovah, what does he give them to entice them to bow down to his idol? Well, one thing he gives them is a beautiful, beautiful statue. My suspicion is it was magnificent. It would be phenomenal to see, wouldn't it? Can you imagine uh, 60 cubits? It could put it uh, somewhere maybe around 90 feet high, right? That's, that'd be amazing. That's uh, what, an eight and a half, nine-story building that's a statue? That's huge. That's wonderful. That'd be really cool to see. And that would entice us. It's like, wow, that's great. It's, a, it's an expression of artistic excellence. Um, he's also offering them a, a crowd of like-minded people who are going to join them, right? Everybody's going to be together. Everybody's going to be doing it. Everybody's doing it. Everybody thinks this is a good idea. Everybody, I mean, all the nations are going to be involved with this, right? That's a part of what he's offering, and that's another pressure that's going to draw them and, and, and uh, take them to that place. And, and not just uh, all of the, the general people. Think about, as he starts out, the people that he's asking to come and to bow down are the leaders of the nation, right? It's not just your, your, your average mob, but this is, this is the, the, the cream of the crop, if you will. It also gives him a sense of civic duty. This is what we do in Babylon. This is our patriotic duty. This is what we ought to do as the people of Babylon. Yes, let's, let's do that. And there also was an enticement, which is, you know what? I want to avoid conflict, because it could really be a bother, couldn't it? To, to not do this. All of these are enticements. How does the world entice you? With a crowd? With friends who agree with you? With the statement, don't be one of those weird Christians, right? Who stand out? That's a pressure that's given to us, an enticement for us. And maybe even, you know what? If you do this, you'll find some fulfillment that is kept away from you otherwise. So how do we resist these enticements? I think the very first is the principle that we have to, we have to live before an audience of one. To live before an audience of one. I, I will never forget the uh, first small group that I was able to lead back in the uh, 80s at a, at a PCA church. Um, a, a part of the reason I was leading it was I was testing my gifts to see if God was calling me to ministry. I'd, I'd clearly been able to show some ability to teach, and I, but I wanted to shepherd. And so I was in this uh, small group, and it was a group of college students, and there were two college students in particular that it was very common that their prayer request was, pray that I be able to live before an audience of one. And that has always stuck with me. I'm sure it wasn't original with them, but um, that's where I first heard it, and so I just want to honor them um, in, in seeing uh, their faith and, and the strength of their faith and to, to learn from them. What does it mean to live before an audience of one? I think it's important that we, we beware, be aware of the power of the crowd. He talks about all the peoples bowed down in verse 7. All the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped. This huge crowd bowed down. There was a, a, a program that Robin and I watched a, a few episodes of, and it was a, a, a link between comedy and science. It was kind of fun. It was called uh, Brain Games. 
I don't know if any of you saw a couple episodes of that. <coughs> there, I think they only made a couple episodes. It wasn't, it wasn't awesome. But there was one episode on conformity that really struck me. That, that they, they did an experiment to see how people conform. And what they did is they had a waiting room in which they told, uh, there, were, there were probably eight or nine people in the waiting room, they told all the people in the waiting room except one that when you hear a beep, you stand up. And so there's this one person that doesn't know, and she's sitting there, and they hear the beep, and all the people stand up, and she starts looking around. Well, that's kind of weird, and so she stays there. And then you hear a beep. By the third beep, she was standing up with him. And it would come at different times, and it would beep, and she would just stand up. And then the people would start to leave, because they'd get called into their appointment, and, then, and, and, and she'd just keep on standing. And then everybody was called out, and it would beep, and no one's in there. But she'd stand up. And then someone else who didn't know came in and sat down. Wasn't a part of the experiment. And it beeped and she stood up. And you know what he did? He stood up too. And he said, well, why are we doing that? She said, I think it's just the thing you do here. Okay. And so he stood up and she stood up. More people came in and then they all are standing up. And this idea of this tradition, not unlike these are the chairs I sit in, but nonetheless, that, that, that this tradition was passed on. And all of a sudden this room is filled with people, none of whom were a part of the experiment. And every one of them was standing when they heard the beep because they were conforming to the crowd. I think it's important for us to understand just how powerful that is in our lives. We've got to be aware of, of that pull upon us. Because if we don't recognize it, we will fall. We will join in with the crowd just to join in with the crowd because our, our, our makeup will drive us to that. But instead, we need to immerse ourselves in truth. If I'm going to live before an audience of one, I've got to be aware of the power of the crowd, but then I need to immerse myself in truth. What is it that I'm going to have change the way that I live my life and direct the way that I live my life. It has to be the truth that leads me in that way. And it's not something I'm just going to automatically know what the truth is. Jesus prayed in John 17, 17. He said, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. The recognition that it is God's word, which is the truth that we so desperately need. Psalm 1, the first three verses, is just a great description of this. Psalm 1 begins with the word blessed, which means happy. It's the, the word that's used there is not the word to bless, but it's the word that just means happy. And he says, where is happiness found? Psalms. These great, this, this prayer book of, of the Hebrews, this, this song book of the Hebrews begins with this idea of how do you find happiness? And he says, how happy is the man, how blessed is the man who does not Walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Doesn't that sound like the individual who isn't just going with the crowd? Isn't that what he seems to be saying? He's not conforming to those who are apart from God? But what, is the, what does he do instead? No, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He isn't, he isn't going along with the crowd. Why? Because he's immersing his mind in truth. He's filling his mind with that which is true. And he's allowing that to guide him. And how does it affect him? He will be like a tree 
firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. To meditate on truth, to meditate on Scripture, it's, we've, we've got to read. Uh, the, the thing about the, the Word of God is you, you, you need to read large portions. You need to, to read chapters. You need to read, read large sections. But that's not sufficient. We also have to meditate and think about carefully what have we just read. What is the point of this passage? What is God communicating to me? How does this affect my life? How do I live this out in the environment I'm going to be in today. To meditate. And then to pray. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father but by me. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth. How am I going to know truth? I can meditate on Scripture, but if I'm not looking to the one who is truth and asking Him, Lord Jesus, open up my eyes to see the truth of your scripture, I won't be able to grasp it. I need the Spirit of God to be illuminating my heart. And so I've got to pray, to meditate and to pray. And then I can choose truth, not the crowd. Then I'm able to analyze what the crowd is deciding to do and I can say, but is that truth? Even when that crowd is the entirety of my friends, even with that crowd maybe my church, when my church is not following after the truth, I must choose the truth. Instead of my church, I'm sure that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had others, good Jews, who bowed down. And they had to resist that and say, even though these are my brothers and sisters, I'm not going to follow that because the truth says I'm to do something different. To live before an audience of one means I need to, to be aware of the power of the crowd and I need to immerse myself in truth. In resisting the world's enticements, I live before an audience of one, and then I recognize that God alone gives life. In verse 6, we read, But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast in the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There's a threat there, isn't it? The king is saying, I will take your life away from you. The king is saying, I have power of life and death in my decree. And he's taking that to himself. And we see later on when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answer him, they demonstrate that they believe that he doesn't have that power at all, right? Our God can rescue us. We're not worried about that, but he might not. But that's up to him, right? They began to assert that we know that God is the one who has life. He's the only one who gives life. You, O king, don't give life. You, O crowd, do not give life. It is God alone who gives life. The lie has been there from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. Remember what God said? The day, in the day that you eat of this tree, you will die. And what does Satan say? There's no subtlety here, right? There's no nuance. This is a clear declaration, God is wrong, right? He says, the servant said, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. That when you eat this, you're going to be like God. 
Well, the fact is, they'd already been created in God's likeness. They already were. He wasn't giving them anything that they didn't have. He was, he was offering them that which they already had. But what happened is when they, when they would eat it, they would not be as like God. Their likeness of God would be obscured. It would be hidden. They would no longer be revealing who God was because they had placed themselves outside of the sphere of what is God. And in that, they would die. So this lie isn't new, and it's what we hear today. We need to catch the lies. And you know the lies, right? The lie of anger. You ever have it well up inside you? Probably you don't, just me, right? I have to deal with that. You, you, you probably like, no, no, no. Anger sin, Pastor. We don't do that. Maybe true. But what does anger offer us? Right? We want to lash out at someone in anger. Why? Doesn't it make us feel powerful? Isn't the lie that you'll be powerful if you'll be angry? You'll control that person. You'll change their behavior. You'll make them act in a manner consistent with what you want. And the lie is there. We've got to catch that lie. We've got to catch the lie of lust that says, hey, why don't you look again? Why don't you ponder in your heart? Because what's it offering? It's saying, you know, you need this to be really fulfilled. To really find satisfaction. Don't rob yourself of this. And it's a lie. And we've got to catch the lie. We've got to catch the lie of popularity. That I want people to like me. I want a lot of people to like me. I want the majority of the people to like me. And that's telling me that you can find your value. I could find my value. If people like me, I must be valuable. I must matter. Instead of living before the audience of one, which is to believe that God values me. We've got to resist the world's enticements. That's our first step to remain in the truth. The enticements are all around us and they're drawing us away from the truth. And we've got to say we're going to remain because we're going to resist those enticements. And then we're going to seek to maintain our witness for Jesus Christ. You see, the world is watching. They are watching what we do. And when they know that you're a Christian, they're watching even more closely, aren't they? They want to see where you mess up. There's a powerful song by DC Talk um, entitled, What If I Stumble? And uh, it begins with, a, with Brennan Manning reading a quote. And Brendan Manning reads this. He says, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. It's really profound, isn't it? And it's true. What is the, 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 the greatest charge that is brought against Christianity? It is the number of hypocrites. And, and that's valid, isn't it? There is an element in which when, when we live inconsistent with who God is, it makes our faith unbelievable. Had Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah bowed down to that idol, 
it would have communicated to King Nebuchadnezzar that all of their assertions about their faith, all of those efforts to, to, uh, just to, to not eat the king's food, all of that was a sham when it really came down when the, the, the rubber met the road. To recognize that and to say, I, I'm going to maintain my witness for Jesus. And there are four ways to do that. And the first is by refusing to compromise. Let's read verses 8 through 15. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. Whatever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipes, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will, be, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire, and what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Here is the challenge. The king's command is clear, isn't it? As if it wasn't clear by the first, the, 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 the first proclamation, as if it wasn't clear when the heralds stood up and loudly proclaimed it, Nebuchadnezzar makes it clear once again by saying the exact same words and says, this is what you've got to do. This is what I require. And at the same time, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 5 has not changed. I'll start in verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. The command of God is clear, isn't it? There's no ambiguity in what God has declared. And there's no ambiguity in what the king has declared. And here they are, contradictory. What is the choice? Will you choose to not compromise? That's what they're faced with. One of the saddest experiences of my life was uh, a pastor who, in my experience, was one of the most gifted teachers I've ever heard. Was, was truly, truly gifted. Was able to open up the scripture and explain it clearly. Was able to apply it well. He was a pastor of a small church, and his elders kept poking him about his convictions. He had a few convictions about little things, and, and they kept just encouraging him, you know, you need to, that's just not such a big deal. 
You know, you keep yourself away from people. You know, you, 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 you need to relate to us. So you need to be a little bit like us. And I watched him begin to compromise on those little bitty convictions. They weren't huge things. And he began to just kind of say, well, yeah, it is not a big deal. Well, it's, it's, it's not such a horrible thing. And well, it's not. And then we began to see changes in his home and the relationship with his wife and his kids began to be difficult. We began to see these, these, these elements of rage begin to build up inside him and, and all of this continued and he ended up losing his family and eventually losing his faith. And he, he walked away from Christ and gave himself over to an atheistic lifestyle. And that's just heartbreaking. It's just heartbreaking to see that. And I look at that and I see the steps. I see the little compromise. And I watched it at the time and I was, I was discouraged. And then seeing another compromise. And it's heartbreaking. We don't think it'll happen to us, right? If I'd asked him, he'd have said, no, 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 no. It's just a little thing. There's no such thing as a slippery slope. But he slid right off. We need to choose to not compromise. Where are you likely to compromise? Are you aware of those spots? Are you aware of where that weakness exists inside you? Secondly, rely on God. Verses 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, We do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will, notice that, he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I just want to notice the faith claims that these individuals made, because I think they're really important for us if we're going to rely on God. We have to know that, first of all, that God exists. Verse 17. If it be so, our God whom we serve, there is a God, and He does exist. That's the first thing to keep in mind. The God that Nebuchadnezzar served just didn't even exist. He wasn't even real. He was just an imagination. There was no God. It was just a statue. It had no power. It was such a statue, it couldn't even bring itself into existence. They had to form it with their hands. It had eyes but could not see. It had ears but could not hear. It had hands but could not do anything. It had feet but could not move. It was nothing but a statue. All of the gods of the world are nothing. They aren't real. But your God is real. He exists. And we begin with that. And because of that, I can rely on Him, right? The second thing they declare is that he saves. He is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. He not only exists, he also saves. What can an idol do to save me? If I serve an idol and someone takes my life, What then? All is lost. But if I serve the true and the living God and someone takes my life, what then? Then my Savior greets me and says, Well done. Enter into your rest. 
God exists, God saves, and God is worthy. Verse 18, but even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. He's worthy. And the idols just aren't. It's just a a pretty statue. It is not worthy of our worship and our service. You see, when we make choices to rely on God, we make it clear what we believe, right? We make it clear who God is. And it shows all that we have said. When, when the three Hebrew children made the choice that they made, it said to Nebuchadnezzar, what we have said all along is true. So we need to rely on God and then we need to live as rescued, as a rescued person. Verses 19 through 27. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it usually was heated. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes, and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire still tied up. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on their bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their heads singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. He talks about the hair being singed. It reminds me that when I was first in seminary in Colorado, we, we had to burn our trash and we'd put it out in a barrel. I don't know how many times I came back from that without eyebrows. <laughs> I just wasn't very good at it. <laughs> and I think about these guys thrown in there, and their eyebrows came out just fine, and their hair wasn't singed. What a wonderful thing. They were rescued, you see. The friends were saved by whom? Was it not that fourth one who was walking with them, who had the appearance of the Son of God? Was it not possible that what he really saw was the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ? That before he had taken upon himself a body, yet he came and he put himself in that place with them. And because of their nearness to him, he protected them from the flames which were all around them and did not allow it to touch anything except the bonds which held them there. What a gracious God. 
What a Savior. He saved them. And you know, when they came out, did you notice they didn't complain about their hardship? They didn't come out going, that was smoking hot, right? Nothing like that. Nothing like, well, King, you're such a jerk, right? How dare you throw us in there? I just can't believe you did that again. Oh, I mean, and, and none of that. He said, come out. They said, all right, here we go. They weren't coming out until he called them. They were fine walking around with Jesus in the fire. No big deal. They accepted the whole thing and weren't grumping and complaining. Why? Because they'd just been saved by Jesus. And they were okay with the rest of that. So they weren't focused on, on that hardship. They weren't offended by the king. There's no indication of hard feelings. What is our message as Christians? Our message is, we're better than the rest of you, right? Wouldn't it be horrible if that got cut out of the video and put up? (laughs) That's not our message at all. Our message isn't we're better than you. Our message is we're saved by the Son of God, right? That's the message that we proclaim. If that's the message that we proclaim, it it has some ramification. It means that I'm saved by grace. I can admit my errors, right? I don't have to be afraid of that. I can admit when my error is even a sin. I don't have to be afraid of that. Because Jesus died for that. Isn't that the message that we have? Isn't that the message that we're taking to the world around us? We're saved not because we're great people, but because God is a great God. Isn't that what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were able to declare? What did they do to save themselves from the fire? Did they soak themselves in water? Did they put on flame-retardant trousers before they went there that day? Asbestos, right? No. What was it? The Son of God. He's the one who saved them. That was the message that they took. We have a message that we are forgiven. What that means is when you do sin, don't sit around and beat yourself up or accept someone else beating you up. You don't have to be. Jesus would beat up for you. You confess and you accept the forgiveness that is yours. That's the message that we declare that we are persons who have been rescued. The final point of of this section is that of maintaining our witness is that we need to wait for ripe fruit. Verse 28 through 30. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. I imagine they were disappointed when they heard the king's response. First off, he said, It's the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He didn't say, our God is the great God. The God that I now serve because I've seen this magnificent miracle. But he remained distant. He remained outside. 
he still trusted people. It was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were the awesome ones, right? They were the ones who did this. And he was still a wicked, oppressive man. Saying, if you, don't, if you say anything bad about their God, I'm going to rip you limb from limb and destroy your house. It's like, oh king, that's not the way. That's not what to do. You remember years later, as the Lord Jesus had been beaten and was mocked, had the spit of the guards running down his face, and he's standing before the king who asks him about his kingdom. And he says, that's not the kind of kingdom I have. If it were, I would call my people and they would, they would conquer, but that's not it. His kingdom was different than that. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego probably wished he'd see that. Notice he even called them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He didn't call them by their Hebrew names, which would give glory and honor to Jehovah. But he continued to honor his gods. Even in the midst of a great moment of a miracle, it doesn't mean people are automatically going to believe, right? You'll be with people in the midst of a crisis and you'll talk to them about the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll walk through those difficult times and you'll point them to Jesus. And sometimes they will still just say, wow, aren't you great? Your God's cool. And they don't actually see that change in their own life. Wait for the ripe fruit. Wait. Maintain the relationship. Stay close. Because things may get worse, as it does for Nebuchadnezzar next week. And they wait, and they're close, and that way when the time is right, they're able to speak and to tell him the message he needs to hear. And you know what else? Sometimes we want to really pressure them in that moment, right? But if God's really at work, right, and he's really beginning to open up their heart, it won't go away. He will protect it. And He will bring it to that moment in which it's ripe. So wait for that ripe fruit for God to accomplish that. Um, now's the time. It's been a while since I've given you a good uh, Star Trek uh, illustration. Um, Star Trek Next Generation, one of my favorite um, episodes is, uh, it's a two-part, but uh, Captain Picard is captured by the Cardassians, not the Kardashians, the Cardassians. Uh, it's, it's an important distinction that we, we, we maintain. But the Cardassians have captured him, knowing that he's the flagship uh, captain, and, and they begin to torture him. And, and they're, they're brutal in the torture. And a part of the torture is offering him peace and safety and a place of, of, of all the things that he would love. Uh, great intellectual uh, conversations and stimulation and, and all of those things, if he'll say one thing, and they just want to ask him, they say, how many lights do you see? And he looks up, and there are four lights that are up there. And he says, there are four. And the Kardashian says, no, no, there are five. And he looks, and he realizes, he just wants me to compromise on this one little thing. He wants me to say, there are five. He's going through all this torture, and he knows if he'll just say that there are five, He'll get out of the torture. He never does. 
He continues to assert that there are four, but at the end, he's talking to the counselor. And he says, here's what I didn't write in my report. On that last day, right before he was rescued, he said, I saw five lights. I think that's what the pressure on us is like. That it can begin to push us to a point where we, we don't see the truth anymore. We can't imagine what it was like for Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. This isn't just a story. These were men who were bound up and thrown into a furnace. They had the anticipation during that process that they were about to die. And they faced that in their own lives. And in the midst of that, they said, but we will not compromise the truth. We will remain in the truth no matter what. As we face the pressure to leave the truth, we remain in the truth when we resist the world's enticements and when we're careful to maintain our witness for God. Let's pray. Father, we need you so desperately. Will you grant us more of you? Father, as we walk through this world in which the ideas around us are are attacking objective truth and reality, and particularly attacking you and the truth about you, Father, we feel the pressure. We feel the pressure to conform to the group around us And we pray that you'll help us instead to remain in the truth. Will you do this so that Jesus will receive all the glory? Amen.